right, I've been trying to pull some opening prayers from different places, kind of, and this one's a, a New Year's Eve prayer. I don't know about anything about David McGee, um, uh, the, the stuff that I found about him, you know, it just seems like kind of a normal, um, non-denominational kind of a guy, um, but I thought that this prayer was a, a nice prayer. Dear God, thank you for new beginnings. What an incredible day this is with a fresh year's potential stretched out before us. We want to be found faithful this year in each and every opportunity you bring to us. Thank you, Lord, for new beginnings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing like, you know, amazing or anything about that, but it's just a nice, solid little, little prayer. So... All right, we are in Romans chapter 8. We, we just kind of cracked into it um, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were last together. And uh, I, I want to re-highlight a couple of things um, that this is kind of the high point uh, or the first high point of the book. You know, so all of the stuff from, from chapters 1 through 7 really are coming to a head right here. Um, you know, so as you think back across those chapters, I mean, it's all about the righteousness of God and you ain't it, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, just really hitting on, you know, the, the sin in our lives and, and, and all of those things that show us that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, that we need a righteousness that comes from the outside. That's chapter three, that is God's righteousness that is given to us as a, as a gift. Um, so the, the whole of chapter 8, it, it's really about all this condemnation being set aside. It's God has done something about the condemnation, about the sin that is in our lives. And uh, the other thing that, that I would re-mention for you as we read through this is watch for the Holy Spirit. Um, this this chapter is really driven by the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's, that's important because when we think about you know, how we come to faith, when we think about the way that God works in our lives, you know, it's the Spirit that's really interacting with us and, and delivering God's gifts to us. Um, and then you know, because it's about what God is doing and not about what we're doing, it, it, it's a little harder to tell in English, but there are no imperative verbs in this chapter. So I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. All right, so Romans 8, 1 through 8. Uh -huh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son into the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, I'm hoping to get at least through the first two verses here. Um, there, there's just so much here. But uh, I remind you that last week, uh, or last time I, I mentioned that uh, the Greek translation of this, uh, you know, it actually, translation, when it was written in the original language, um, it, it starts out with the negative. I'm sorry. <coughs> ah, I have a hard time. After a while, my throat gets back. Ah, all right, sorry. Um, there is a, uh, um, it, it starts with the negative, and uh, basically, um, I think that that is the emphasis here. There is no condemnation. You know, so it's almost as if, you know, when, when, I, when I went through it, I, I, I retranslated it, um, and uh, just kind of like a word-for-word -word type of translation. Um, nothing, therefore, is con condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing is condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, it's tempting to uh, to think about this in terms of um, uh, kind of chapter numbers, you know, because um, we break up these these sections um, by chapters and verses and, and the like. Um, but we need to keep in mind that the way that we look at our Bible, that's not the way it was written. You know, sometimes I'll say sarcastically, you know, here's Paul writing, chapter 8, <laughs> verse 1. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's not how this came about. Um, in fact, uh, the way that the Bible is split up in terms of chapters, that was put together by uh, um, Pastor Stephen Langston, uh, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in the tw early 1200s. So the, the division into chapters, I mean, th these things are old, but, you know, the Bible's already been around for a while by the time they get around to the... Yeah. It's an academic thing. Well, wasn't there a question of, you know, different versions there were. having page numbers? Yes. And, you, you know, if you said turn to page 500, everybody would be in a different... Oh. <laughs> and by having chapter and verse, it was a common yep. reference that you could get to. So, yes, and, and sometimes, you know, when we've taught, we've got these Bibles down here. And, and sometimes, you know, I've um, made sure that I put page numbers in, you know, and it's reference to these Bibles, you know, so that, you know, people can look them up if they want to. Um, but it, it's, it's that being able to study it and get everybody literally on the same page. You know, and so in order to know where to find things, um, uh, Langton broke it into chapters. There were other people who did this too, uh, but Langton's is the one that is still around today that, that we continue to use. Um, and then uh, there were others who broke that into verses as well, but there was a, a guy by the name of Robert Estienne. Um, in 1551, he was a, a printer and a scholar and he took the Greek New Testament and he broke that in those chapters into verses. And those are the verses that we see in here. And then he did that through the rest of the Bible too. And so um, it, it, this is all still in very much in the, in the clergy world. It's, it's not in any kind of popular reading. Um, it's not until 1560 
that we get our first English language Bible with chapters and verses, and that was the Geneva Bible. Um, you know, so you know, as we look at these things, we, we have to recognize that some of the divisions that we're seeing, they're kind of false. They're imposed on the text. This is a letter. Um, in fact, um, uh, on the Lutheran Hour this morning, Michael Ziegler was talking about this. Um, one of the things I, I like about our current Lutheran Hour speaker is he likes to take these long sections of, of the scriptures. You know, and, and he'll read long sections as part of his sermon. And the first time I, I heard that, I was like, I don't know that I like that. But it's kind of grown on me, just this, you know, you know, really seeing the, the bigger picture mm -hmm. as, as part of his, his, his preaching. You know, he's pretty talented that way. Has, um, yeah. Has anyone ever come out with an edition of the Bible that's basically read like that, but also had just little notations so you could always find the chapter and verse, but didn't have a big... Here's the beginning of chapter eight. Here's the beginning of chapter nine. Yeah, there there are some that are out there that are just the text. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, one of the things that that I find kind of fascinating. You know, I have my my Lutheran study Bible. I like this. I think it's a really useful tool. Mm -hmm. But this thing could be half the size if it didn't have all the notes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's and that's not a complaint because I mean. I appreciate the notes and I find them to be helpful, mm -hmm. but sometimes I think that when we read stuff like this, we, you know, we're reading along and then we're like, oh, there's a note on this, and I gotta go down, I read the note, and then I come back to it, yeah. you know. And I'm a guy who loves footnotes, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if they give more information and stuff like that. But the Bible's not like that, you know. They're not footnoting. These are these are people's commentary mm -hmm. that are that are added, you know. To the text, mm -hmm. so I've seen. Um, I I'm, I don't think I've seen anywhere they take out the chapters and verses, but they take out the headings, they take out the notes, and mm -hmm. you're just left with, you know, a single column, like mm -hmm. you, you were reading a novel, you yeah. know, type of a of a format, you know, and the idea is you're just you're just reading the Bible. It was kind of yeah. nice. You have the Lutheran Study Bible. Yeah. The people who wrote the Bible were not writing the Study Bible. Right. They're they writing were, letters. Yes, mm -hmm. they were writing letters to people. And we don't usually put chapter and verse in letters that we write. But we have to remember that that's something that we put on top of it later just so we could find things. Right. But they just wrote it. Right. So... Just like when we were in you know, English class in high school and college, we can still see movements, though, in the documents that we're reading. And so as, if you were to read Romans as a letter, when you get to this point where Paul says, you know, now there is no condemnation you know, for those who are in Christ Jesus, this is one of those points where you have a shift and you know, he, he is making a, a, a new point. And everything has built to this point where he's going to spend some time talking about God's salvation and, and talking about why it is that there is you know, no, nothing, none uh, that can uh, condemn um, the, the believer in, in Jesus. And condemnation, it stands as the opposite of justification. And, uh, and then so what he's going to do is he's really going to dig into what does it mean to be saved from this body of death? 
because that was what he was complaining about before, right? You know, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, you know, and that there's now no condemnation. And so verse 2, um, verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law of the spirit of life, this is our first mention of the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes people will talk about the Holy Spirit and say, um, that's a New Testament thing. It's not a New Testament thing. Um, he's mentioned throughout the Old Testament as early as Genesis 1, chapter 2, where it talks about the Ruach Elohim, um, which means you know the Spirit of God in Hebrew. He's there at creation. Um, you know, it, it says that in the beginning that you know God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the, the waters of the deep. You know, there, there's some things that maybe we don't understand about this, but at the same time, we have one God. You know, and all of a sudden we're, we're talking about His Spirit. And as Christians, the next thing we know, God speaks, which he speaks words. You know, and so we look at that in, in retrospect, and we're like, whoa, the Trinity is right there already at, at creation. Um, which is something that, you know, if you don't have the New Testament, <coughs> the whole Trinity thing, it's there in the Old, but it's a lot harder to, to see. Um, and... Uh, Sometimes people will say, you know, it's not fair to impose the uh, the New Testament on the Old Testament. Um, I kind of look at that and say, Jesus says, you know, you search the scriptures, talking about the, what we call the Old Testament, these speak of me. So when we read the Old Testament, we're, we're actually, our paradigm to understand what's going on there is that this, this is talking about Jesus in some way. You know, so... That whenever we try to interpret the Old Testament, where it's, we're pulling that back to say, okay, Jesus says this is about him. How is this about him? Um, you know, so the whole thing with the Trinity, um, which is a word that does not show up anywhere in the Bible, by the way. Um, you know, these are things that we're pulling together. Um, you know, in uh, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're taking Jesus' words and we're trying to wrap our minds around how does this all work. And so the Holy Spirit is an essential part of this work of God, you know, God working in us and in the world. Um, and uh, we continue to talk about this in the Nicene Creed, where we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And, you know, that's got its own controversy about it uh, that proceeds from... You, you guys have Orthodox uh, husbands, right? Yeah, we do. This, this is, that, that was the phrase that broke the... Orthodox and the Catholics from each other in the 1000s. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that either. Yeah. I don't think he knows that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if if you grow up in things, sometimes it's just, you know, that's just yeah, the way it is, right? Uh -huh. So, yeah. 
So the law of the spirit of life, we got the Holy Spirit at work, and then it says this law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus uh, has set you free. Now, some of you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, yes? Mm -hmm. If you were to go home and pull out your King James Version, truth in advertising, it would say, in Christ Jesus has set me free. There is what we uh, call a textual variant here. Now, there are all kinds of textual variants. And people sometimes look at those and they're like, ah, oh, look, the Bible's full of mistakes. <laughs> Not really. Um, it, it, because most, most of the textual variants are like this. Um, when you see the word um, in uh, uh, Greek for me, it would be me, me, pronounced differently. The word you looks very differently than me in English, but in Greek it's se, you know, an S-E. Still two letters, you know, and you got, you got to think of people, the way that they copied this, you know, you have rooms, somebody's reading it, they're copying it by hand. So yeah, there, there are things like this. Um, but if, if somebody's like, the, you know, the Bible's full of errors and you can't trust it, feel free to yawn. <laughs> because, you know, the vast majority of those errors are like this. They're just these little things. Um, which, in fact, don't really end up changing the meaning of the text. Right. So, yeah. There were some major upheavals. Oh, yeah. Not in the earliest church, but maybe sort of medieval when some some early texts were discovered that did have variants. Yeah. And it just struck at the core of people's faith sure. that that the Bible was that the words themselves were so holy that God would never allow them to be changed. Uh, and I don't know if it was specifics of oh, I always believed this was true, and now it says this is true, so much as it was Bible worship. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I and, do. And, and it was just really threw people off. Yeah. So one of the things that a lot of times people don't understand is we have no originals of any of this. It's not like we have Paul's letter to the Romans, the original copy of it. There's nothing from any of these. In fact, um, there's nothing like that in any ancient literature where we have like really original copies. We have old, old copies. And sometimes we have lots of them. With the Bible, we have tons of them. You know, um, I went to school at Concordia in Ann Arbor. The University of Michigan the library has these pieces of papyri, ancient, ancient paper, with all kinds of different scraps of the New Testament. It's part of the reason we don't have these is because, you know, paper, it's not a terribly durable thing, especially ancient papers. 
Um, and you know, so what we've done is there's, there's a whole science about this to take all of these copies that we have and compare them. Because at some point, um, starting in, I want to say the, the 300s, we have full copies of books. But when you go back, you can find scraps. You can find where people quoted the Bible in their documents, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And you can make comparisons. And by making these comparisons, you can come up with, uh, with really a strong sense of confidence that this is what the original said. Everything that we have is really rooted in that. You know, making those comparisons and studying what's the oldest, what, you know, what parts of the world did this come from, and, you know, how many attestations from ancient manuscripts and the like are exactly word for word what we have on, on these other documents. Joe. Well, I think a couple of things sort of floated through my head. One is the bulletin, which is an original document every week. Yeah. And I don't. Didn't you say the other day you don't think there has been an error-free bulletin ever in your life? Oh my gosh, probably not. <laughs> and that gets reviewed by a lot of people. So if, even if we could get the original, would that necessarily, if every, every word that's in there is penned by a human hand? Right. Ultimately. And so is that the... Well, and, and even it's just in a sense of a misspelling uh -huh. or a grammatical error. I'm going to tell you right, right up front, reading Paul in, in the original, his grammar is terrible sometimes. Yes. These incredible run-on sentences. Um, if you pull out Ephesians, um, pretty much all of chapter 1 is one sentence. And it's like, really? You know, and it, I mean, and then you go to Luke. Luke was probably the most educated. Well, Paul's very educated, but... Luke is an actual Greek speaker. His sentence structure is so complex, but you know he's got his grammar down. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, oh, you know. It, it, and John, uh, as a um, um, a, a uh, Aramaic speaker, sometimes you read his stuff and it's like this is more like Hebrew than it is like Greek. You know, in the sentence structure and the syntax and things like that. You know, it, it, you know so it, it's this beautiful thing where God has taken people and delivered his word to us. You know, and it's, it's very reliable. You know, we, we can trust that God is able to communicate what he wants to communicate to us. Um, but you do find little things like this that pop up from time to time. And most of them, like I said, are like this. It's a one letter difference. Or it might be the tense of a verb from a regular past tense to a perfect tense. Wow. You know, um, there are a couple of larger ones um, that, that grab the attention. Um, one of uh, people's favorite stories uh, in the Gospel of John uh, is uh, the woman caught in adultery. Um, the oldest texts don't have that. Now, we have old attestations to that story. And so, 
you know, and it's definitely in old texts, just not the oldest ones. And so what do you do with that? Well, if you're going to be honest about it, intellectually, you've got to kind of mark that. Mm -hmm. um, my professor at the seminary kind of felt like this was probably a story that John told a lot, but it didn't make into the gospel when he wrote it. John was a preacher, right? I tell the same stories over and over again. I know that. Yeah. And that, that's the suspicion. Can I prove that? No. But I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that this is something that came from the apostles' lips. And probably, if it were all that important, God would have made sure that it was more clear. Yeah. He's not going to let things be out there that's going to confuse everybody. Right. But I, I, do, I do know pastors that reject that portion of the scriptures. Okay. I'm not too fussed about that. You know, uh, the other one that often comes up is the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you have a Bible, this is actually, this is actually worth a, a quick little uh, look. So Mark chapter 16. I remember, you know, when I was a kid coming in on Easter, if we were reading from Mark, it was always marked that, uh, you know, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, um, which is true. However, so if the Gospel of Mark ends the way that I think it ends, I think that the Gospel of Mark actually ends at chapter 8, or verse 8. And it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I think that's where it ends because I think that Mark, when I read through the Gospel of Mark, the thing that I see is that uh, um, Mark is written to Gentile Christians. Uh, I believe it is the last uh, well, the second last, because um, John wrote much later. Um, and I know that that disagrees with some scholars, but it doesn't disagree with the early historians. Um, and uh, they, uh, I think that he is talking with people who wished they could be there because it would be easier to believe. The disciples never looked dumber than in the Gospel of Mark. There are all of these incredible accounts of Jesus, there, there are three accounts of Jesus giving people their sight. And one of them, he has to do it twice. I think, I think that Mark's point is that faith is hard. And I think that he ended with, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment and seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, is that a very satisfying ending to a gospel? No. So... I think that other people came along later and probably very early on and added things from other Gospels to make it have a better ending. Does that sound like a very human thing to do? Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Is there anything in that those next verses that we would be like, whoa, that's crazy. I can't believe that. No. It all fits very nicely with the other Gospels. Well, verse 18 is a little iffy. Is that the one about snakes? 
Yeah. Yeah. And deadly poison. Yeah. However, that did happen. And Mark um, hang, hung out with a guy by the name of Paul. And remember that when Paul at one point threw fire in, or threw wood into the fire, there was a snake in there. Came out, bit him. Right. And he wasn't affected by the poison. Um, the other uh, Saint John was known to have been uh, poisoned uh, later, you know, and uh, was not affected by the the poison in the cup. So th there are things that match that, you know. But uh, um, yeah, nothing too bizarre or more bizarre than usual for what we believe. I mean, we do. We are a faith that believes that somebody rose from the dead, who was God and human. So, and other people were raised from the dead too. And he raised other people from the dead too. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Christianity doesn't make any sense. In, a, in from an earthly point of view, right? So, I don't know. Um, the, I do think that it's important to to recognize. That the Bible that we have in our hands, it's not, it's not the original text, but it's very highly reliable because it's been so deeply studied. Um, you know, and and people will get bent out of shape about you know how all of this was was studied and brought together. But the vast amount of documents that we have, there's nothing like this. You know, nobody doubts that there was an Aristotle. But almost all of our documents from Aristotle come, you know, from the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. because it was translated into Arabic. We have no original documents. You know, uh, some people doubt that there was a guy by the name of Socrates. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, no, that, that guy was real. We got nothing written by him. It's all from Plato. That. You know, it was all handed down, you know, so. Um, so, anyhow, in, the, in this passage where it says, you know, that uh, um, Christ has set you free or Christ has set me free, uh, if it says me, you know, Christ has set me free, it's just a continuation of uh, Paul's statement in 724 where he says, you know, I'm a wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death. He's just kind of continuing in that same kind of vein where he's using his ex himself as an example of the entire Christian faith. Sort of an everyman. Yeah. You know, and if it's you, then Paul has shifted from using himself as an example, and it's directly stating that what, what is meant to be inferred in the other reading. So, I probably beat a dead horse to death there. So, um, yeah, anyhow. So, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus and has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, sin and death have been closely connected all through Romans. You know, it just, you know, just from chapter 5 here. Uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Connecting them together. Chapter 5, verse 17. Um, for if, because of one man's trespass, that's a sin, death reigned through that one man. Sin and death brought together again. 6, verse 16. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. death. Um, verse six, chapter 6, verse 21. But what fruit were you getting from that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That's sin. For the end of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death. Chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So it's just constantly bringing sin and death together here. Um, and, and we make this connection of, of sin and death uh, when we talk about baptism. Uh, you know, in the small catechism, Luther asks, what benefit does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. You know, forgiveness of sins, rescues from death, you know, all of these things. So, reading this through, some key questions. What is the law of the spirit of life? Having read through the first seven chapters, what, what, is, what is this law that he's talking about? Okay. It's faith in Jesus. It's being justified freely as a gift. It's not law in the sense of, you know, commandments, but it's law in the sense of this is the way this works. You know, and, uh, and in saying that, how does one become right with God? It is not through all these efforts. First seven chapters have really laid that low. It's all about the forgiveness and salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross, that the Holy Spirit then delivers to us to be received by faith, which is also a gift from him. So then what does it mean to be free? To be controlled by God. Is that freedom? Freedom from sin. Okay. No, you can't ever be totally free. There's always somebody or something that has some control over you. Maybe we're free by grace. That the grace of God takes all of our brokenness and presents us as unblemished just because of Christ's sacrifice. Okay. So that freedom would be a, a freedom from the fear? I think it's, it's freedom from God's righteous judgment. Okay. Fine. In, in knowing that it's not dependent on what we do, it's dependent on Christ. And we then try to act out on 
As Westerners, though, when we hear this word free, we have a, a different kind of a context in our mind, right? And, and I do think that sometimes we pull this in to our understanding of what's going on here in, in Jesus' salvation. You know, to say that we're free, um, that sometimes that means that, you know, do whatever you want. You know, or that it means that, you know, there's, you know, there's no obligation anywhere. And I, I think that that has to be held in context or in, in um, tension with what you were actually talking about, which is in the next question, what does it mean to be free in Christ? Because in a sense, we are more free now, or we are more free apart from Jesus, in a sense, than we are free in Jesus. Because you can do whatever you want. Do that's true. <laughs> there will be consequences, but you can't. Right. Yeah, Carol? Quite often, adults haven't gotten any farther along than kindergarten kids, especially the boys. You stand there with their feet planted and their shoulders back there. You can't tell me what to do. And adults are quite often the same way, especially when it comes to Christianity, you can't tell me what to do. Yeah, and I don't know that it's just Christianity. I, th I think that that you know really spreads out across a lot of mm -hmm. life. Yeah, yeah. As in yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it, and there is a um, there is a uh, um, oh shoot. Bang. Good call. Um, uh, where was my brain? Hiding with mine. <laughs> um, free, free in Christ. Uh, oh, it's the uh, the first uh, the first sin. You know, mm -hmm. you will be like God. God. Did, did God really say? Right. You know. So, so much of our struggle with God is, you know, am I going to live under Him or am I going to live? For myself, is he going to be God, or am I going to be God? Um, you know, and decide what's right and wrong, or he's going to decide what's right or wrong. You know, and, and there's this relationship of well, rebellion that that's involved there. And so, for a lot of people, um, you know, anything that uh, restricts their choices, restricts their desires, restricts their um, and just what they want to do, you know, that's that's an offense against my freedom. They're they're five year old boys. Well, or girls. Yeah, mostly boys. I don't, I don't know about that. Trust me. Having yeah. having had had three daughters, um, they're pretty good at that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they aren't quite as blatant. Sometimes. But you know, I have I definitely had one that was very much you know, in you know, nope. This is me. I'm. <laughs> no, they get that. They set their feet. Yeah. They put their hands. They set. Yeah, and you could tell just by the, the, the look of their body, what they're thinking and what they're gonna say. It's like, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. 
Yep. Well, and yeah. a lot of people never grow past that. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. So it's curious that that's so sort of universal, mm -hmm. and at the same time so logically inconsistent. But because obviously anybody can tell anybody else what to do. Yeah. You right. can do it. Yeah. Saying you can't is a nonsensical thing. Yeah. You can't make them do it. And that's what they're really trying to get at. And you're not necessarily under any obligation to do it. If I, yeah. you know, yeah. somebody so tells you to go jump in a lake, you don't got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, uh, you're under no obligation. However, when God speaks things <laughs> as a creator, there's an obligation there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's a sense of if I'm free, I have no obligation. You know, I may be jumping ahead. I don't have gotten to verse 5 yet. So that, that seems to me to bring everything to a head. Okay. Because when he, he talks about, you know, people who are... Living according to the flesh. ...set on the, the flesh or the spirit. Right. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a dividing of our population into two parts. Those who are in set A and those who are... And it seems to me, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but all the stuff about, oh, you don't have to worry about the law anymore. All you have to do is have your mind set on the flesh, on the, on the spirit, absolutely all the time. It seems to me that the bar has not been lowered at all, and we're no more free than we were at the beginning. All right. I'm going to put a pin in that. Yeah, and he could just as easily have said, well, it divides into the people who obey the law and people who don't obey the law. And then the question becomes, what is the law? Yeah. Okay, okay. Dr. Joe. I lost my <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> All right, so you're thinking like good Lutherans. Um, <laughs> because this conversation about free will... It, it is something that um, Christians have struggled with time out of memory, okay? And uh, Luther once wrote a document that is called uh, The Bondage of the Will. And part of his point is you don't have free will. Your will is always bound in some way. Now, he's not saying that, you know, Dave was destined to wear a green sweater and brown pants today. That, that's not that's not the kind of thing you know. We we have God gives us a remarkable amount of freedom, you know, in terms of things that are within our power. Things that are you know, Luther would talk about and things beneath us, things that you know we we can control, things that we can manipulate. You know, we we actually have a lot of free will in a lot of those areas. But in terms of whether or not you're going to sin, whether or not you know your, your, your will is bound, and it is only through the intervention of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that the things that we do become righteous in God's sight. And that's where the freedom that Jill was talking about earlier really comes into play. That everything that's done in faith is good and glorifies God. And, and, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. 
you could do the exact same thing. You know, somebody makes a donation to the poor. You know, that's you know mm -hmm. something that, that we like to talk, you know use as an example sometimes. Two people did the exact same thing. One did it out of faith. The other did it out of I don't know. Um, Tax deduction, thank you. <laughs> Enlightened self-interest, I don't know. Um, when God looks at that, he weighs those differently. Mm -hmm. You know, the one done out of faith is good and glorifies him. We look at that, it's the same thing. And when we start dealing about these things with freedom, you know, it's really about what has God done in us and for us because you are going to be either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. And the way that we experience this in this world, it is kind of both. Yeah, that was what I was getting at. Yeah. Most of us in between, back to my, I might go so far as to say all of us, you know, of being in the flesh sometimes and in the spirit sometimes. And sometimes we really have a hard time figuring out which is which. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't say even in between. I would say that you're completely in both camps all the time. Yeah. Which is a paradox. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you be a saint and a sinner? Well, that's actually at the heart of, of, of what Paul is teaching us here. Okay. That in faith in Christ, those of us who should be condemned are declared righteous. You know, and so some of the stuff about freedom then, it, it's, it, it's very much what Jill was talking about, that this, what the law is saying to us has been set aside by what the gospel speaks. Now, the obligation of the law to do things that are good and to do what is right, that's not in a sense just pushed to the side, like you know, those things don't matter anymore. The motivation though, changes because it's about what God has done in our lives in order to redeem us and save us and holding on to those promises that I'm not earning a place but I'm acting out of the love and forgiveness that God has shown to me all of a sudden that changes that relationship to the law I think that this is kind of the key to understanding Psalm 119 you know when he says I love your law O Lord why would anybody love God's law that tells you you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't? Mm -hmm. It's only when you've experienced the love that all of a sudden these things open up and you start to see them as expressions of love. So, what are the consequences of being freed from sin and death? It's not that you don't have to, you know, it's not that you don't. Um, it's not that you don't do good anymore. But your whole reason for doing good things is completely different. We don't have to be obsessed with saving ourselves. Jesus has done the work. In fact, he continues to deliver it through the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't have to go out and you know climb mountains to find it. He brings it to us. So, and that, you know, go back to Jill in terms of the benefits. You know, 
these things aren't hanging over your head anymore. And if you've been you know, on the executioner's block <laughs> in that condemnation, I would think that being freed from sin and death, there'd be joy there and gratitude, gladness. But I also think that there would be a sense of, of courage there. Because what can these things do to me? I have experienced something greater to live for. You know, and I do think that um, I, I think that this might be the whole history of the church. Sometimes you know we see things through our own filters, um, but it, it seems to me, as somebody who has studied history, that a major part of the motivation of the church in this era has been fear in, in terms of how we approach the world. You know, and uh, and I I think about this: God has freed us from sin and death. What do we have to fear in this world? Persecution, suffering. So what? A lot of people fear being laughed at. That's true. Don't make fun of me. I mean, they will do and say anything to keep from being an object of ridicule. That's true. But how does that compare? Not well. Right. But that doesn't always stop people from feeling no. that way and doing that. You know, and so I sometimes wonder, you know, If because we still kind of hold on to the idea that there's something that we have to do to free ourselves, you know, that, that there's this part of us that holds on to um, being like God. Something. I'm sorry? But that we hang on to the idea that I've got to do something. Yeah, that there's something within us that's, you know, that we are like God in order, you know, to affect our own salvation or, or make a difference in the world or you know whatever that is um, that because we hold on to that we lose the sense of courage that can come from being really free you know like like Stephen um, so on the 26th uh, if you're from England you're you know looking at that as Boxing Day um, but at, in the church, that's set aside as the Feast of Stephen, mm -hmm. you know, the first Christian martyr. And uh, he boldly proclaims the gospel in a very hostile context. There is no sign that he is fearful at any point in any of this. Um, and uh, anybody re um, remember what, what among his last words were? He prayed God would not to hold his own murder against the people who were stoning him. There's no fear there. Just complete confidence in God's salvation. Um, in terms of the, uh, the uh, Lutheran, uh, the way the Lutherans observe uh, the, the holidays after um, Christmas, today is set aside to commemorate a guy by the name of Leah. L-O-E-H-E. -E. Um, and um, 
like all these old Germans, he had three first names, but he, Wilhelm was the, the name that he was mostly called by. Um, and uh, this guy, in the early, early and mid-1800s, he's a German pastor. He never set, soil, set his feet on American soil, to my knowledge. And, uh, but he has had more influence on um, Lutheran Christianity in America than probably anybody because he was so convinced that you know people needed the gospel here that he arranged missionaries to come to this crazy place think of america in in the mid 1800s i mean the wild west is still a real thing you've got the civil war you know all of those things going on here you know and and he's working hard to send missionaries over here to establish the church. I don't know about you. I sometimes get a little nervous when I jump on a plane. Can you imagine jumping on a ship that's going to take over a month? You know, to get if it gets. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who founded the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. One of the ships, full of members, sank mm-hmm. on the way over. You know, I just I just look at some of this stuff, and you know, and I wonder about the courage that we might have by holding on to. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That God has settled all of this. And Paul's going to continue to, to dig into this as we go through chapter 8. Um, just really looking at the hope and the victory that we have in Jesus. So, Other comments or questions before we wrap it up here? Thanks for being here. It's good to see some, some faces. Good to be back together after a little, uh, little break. And um, at some point... I'm going to have to go back and uh, uh, teach some confirmation classes. I, I'm not sure exactly when that is. I think it's in February. Um, I'm, you know, my, my, my hope is that I can make a, a nice break in terms of you know, wrapping something up before we move into something new. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll teach the confirmation class and then we'll pick up where I leave off um, when I come back, if that's okay with everybody course if you're all like we are so sick of Romans would you please would you please teach about Deuteronomy um, yeah Deuteronomy is yeah some of those are hard um, just as a, um, a kind of a heads up looking at uh, looking ahead um, Easter is late-ish this year, um, April 17, I think is the date, um, and um, uh, Ash Wednesday is March 2nd. So often New Year's, we, we have these, uh, um, these things called resolutions, um, which you know, are usually broken by the third, um, but uh, uh, 
one of the, the things that people often will do is, you know, I want to do a Bible reading, you know, every day or whatever. If you've started something like that, if you need help with that, let me know. But um, just as a heads up, I'm going to put together, or I have kind of cobbled together from other sources, a uh, reading through the Gospels uh, through Lent. Um, and uh, so all four Gospels across 40 days. Uh, so if that's something that, uh, that you want to participate in, you know, and that if that impacts, you know, your other resolutions in terms of your devotional life, um, you know, just have that in mind. And maybe when we get to that point, you'll be like, no, I'm already doing this. I'm sticking with this. Peace be with you. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you're like, I don't know what to do. I just want to do something. Something is coming. Um, but uh, it's going to start, I think, March 2nd. So, all right. Blessings. Thank you.